All right. Welcome to the Lions God podcast, where we take on topics in performance and personal growth by exploring various success stories and the lessons learned. We interview other expert guests and review books and other resources to help us establish clarity, build courage, and lead. I'm your host, Dale Walls, founder of Lions Guide and certified high-performance coach. On today's episode, we talk to Mr. Paul Comfort. Paul has been a local guy. He's been into so much. And on today's podcast, we really just dive into his story and really take take a ride on his journey. So uh, Paul is the author of the Amazon number one bestselling book, The Future of Public Transportation, and host of the world's top public transportation executive podcast, Transit Unplugged, heard in 99 countries. He serves as the Senior Vice President and Chief Customer Officer for the world's largest transit technology company, the Trapeze Group, and is Executive Director of the North American Transit Alliance. Paul is the former CEO of one of America's top transit systems, which is the Maryland uh, Transit Assistant MTA in Baltimore, Maryland. He also served as an elected county commissioner and a county administrator. He's an attorney and the recipient of the transportation industry's highest individual honor, the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials, AASHTO, President's Award. So on this episode, Paul and I really discuss his life journey, you know, from a small town to local leadership to large organization leadership and administration and Talk about his, you know, lessons and his principles for success from that, and much more. So let's take take a ride with Paul. If uh, you like the sound of that, hit that subscribe button now, so we can don't miss any of our great guests and content. With that, let's start the show. Today on the Lions Guy podcast, we got Mr. Paul Comfort. And, you know, Paul, I wanted on the show today because, I mean, I just, you've been a figment in kind of my sphere for a long time. You're the county administrator of my local county. You've just gone on to do great things. You're writing books and, you know, to just have a portfolio, I'll say, of success that, that you have, it's not without having great habits, great processes, great insights. And, you know, I wanted to get you on today to just go through that, man. I mean, because you, you've just done so much. It's super impressive. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, steal. I'll, you'll, you'll do that justice way better than I. So, Paul, tell us a little bit about, your, about yourself, where, about your background. Where did you come from? Well, thank you, Dale. It's an honor to be with you today on your podcast. I'm very excited for you and uh, the messaging that your Lion's Guide podcast is going to bring to the world. We need more positive messages right now. We need uh, guides and examples to do just what you talked about, about how people can become self-actualized uh, and reach the ultimate you know, kind of destiny of your life to make an impact on the world where you want to make an impact. So thank you for the opportunity to share my story. It's an honor to be with you on your show. So as Great you know, Dale, uh, <laughs> you and I are both from uh, Queen Anne's County, Maryland. Uh, we're both kind of local boys done good. And uh, I'm, I'm one more comment about you. I've been very impressed to watch your career. I've lived here in my, you know, my entire life, basically, except for a five-year stint in Southern Maryland. And I've seen, you know, your company grow, your family grow. You're, you're a, a real model of a fully successful man, you know, with your family and your, and your work and your health, uh, which is something that I've really picked up over the last year, which we'll talk about, I guess. Awesome. But uh, you are a model for me as well, my friend. Thank you. Look, that makes my day. It's why I'm here. I mean, that's what keeps me motivated. It's just like, 
you know, it's, it, you know, that whole thing, like it's better to give than to receive. And just two things when, you know, when I saw, sold and retired from Corsica, you know, I, there's, that was a pivot point, right? I'm, I'm 41 years old and there's a choice right there, right? Like, yes. am, am I done? Right. Am I done? Or can I bring some value, keep bringing some value? And, you know, IT was a, I, I had a tool and a knowledge that I could serve others with. That's how I, that's why I started the company. I loved helping people who had IT problems and it was yeah. fun to me, you know, you to be that hero. You guys a few times. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, and now here I was, right? Now I've got all this two decades of leadership management, entrepreneurship, and it's the same thing. It's, I want to keep myself honest. I want to keep pushing myself to the next level. And if I can serve others and, 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 and in that regard, I'm holding myself accountable. I'm not that guy that's going to be out here talking about performance and growth and not be pushing myself at the same time. So it's kind of like a, a win-win for me, you know, that I want to keep going. That means I need to keep serving, you know? So, gotcha. but no, thank you. I, I yeah. appreciate that. So, uh, you so what, that first, the first question was kind of tell me about my career life or story or whatever, right? Yeah, please. So, uh, I've outlined this for those who might be interested in seeing it in writing in my first book called full throttle, which is available on Amazon. Uh, but basically, uh, my story starts right here in Queen Anne's County, Maryland. My parents moved here when I was 12 years old to Kent Island, and I grew up in Kentmore and um, went to school here. I went to private school for high school, Christian school. My dad was a pastor, and so I was raised uh, in a very strong Christian home, and my Christian faith has become really a foundation for uh, and to strengthen me and to guide me for the rest of my life, and it's informed my worldview in the sense that my goal, like yours, Dale, I think, is my ultimate goal is to make an impact on the world for good and to help others. That's always been my driving principle. And so uh, after I got involved in politics at a young age, I was very interested in, in political things. Actually, you know what got me interested? My parents were, were interested in politics. Um, my mother was campaigning for Republican candidates for president when she was pregnant for me. Wow. And, uh, and so uh, she went door to door for uh, you know Goldwater back in 64 and I was uh, in her belly at that time when she was going door to door, she told me. So maybe it got in my blood from right inside her. But anyway, um, I got That's super awesome. interested in politics in 1976. My parents and I, we took a big trip to Orlando, Florida, to Disney and to visit people down there. We knew that were friends of ours. We visited Claude McBride, who was the chaplain of the Georgia Bulldogs and Jimmy Carter's first cousin. And a good friend of ours. And so we were bipartisan in that effort. You know? So we visited him, went to the Georgia Bulldog Stadium. And then uh, and while we were there, we were, in a, we were in a Howard Johnson's hotel. And I remember we were watching the Republican convention in 1976. And this was the one where Gerald Ford had just, you know, he was the vice president for Nixon. And Reagan was interested in running. And they were, they were at each other's throats at the, uh, you know, figuratively speaking, at the convention. And I remember this whole thing about the white Ford phone. And they said, you know, Reagan people have pulled the white Ford phone. They've disconnected it. And there's all this drama. And I don't know, it just <laughs> the drama of the politics got me interested. And then I just started following politics at like age 11 and 12 and went on. And um, at age 16, I talked my brother, Derek Comfort, who was um, in the National Guard. Uh, and he was actually going to OCS school during this time. Uh, I talked him into running for House of Delegates because I couldn't run and I wanted to manage his campaign. And so that was kind of my <laughs> foray into it. And he, you know, nobody ran against him in the Republican Party nomination. And so he won. And 
I got to manage his campaign oh, with a bunch well, of time friends. Out, time out. So he wanted he he was not interested in politics, he and you talked him into it. Okay, yeah, yeah. But what kind of influence as a young man did you have? You know, hey man, this is what you're going to do. You're going to run. So he was away for OCS for three months during the during the campaign. So me and his future wife and some and a treasurer and some friends of ours kind of ran the campaign without him for three months until he came back and he did great. He was an awesome candidate. And he got super involved in politics, too, and ended up becoming chairman of the Republican Party here in our county for a while. So uh, anyway, I got him to run. He, uh, we made a lot of friends in the House of Delegates at the time, these local guys, Ron Guns, Clay Mitchell, who became Speaker of the House during that campaign. And it, I, the, bug, the bug really bit me, and I knew I wanted to be in government and politics. And so um, when I was in college, I finally was able to run for office. So I ran for county commissioner at age 21 here in Queen Anne's County. And uh, and for I, I ended up becoming a Democrat at that point because I felt like uh, there was a bunch of reasons why. But I'm I'm more like a moderate, what they used to call a Sam Nunn Democrat, <laughs> in, in my kind of personal philosophy. I'm not super far right. I'm not super far left. I'm kind of sure. uh, center right. And uh, sure. and so I ended up becoming um, a Democrat. Ran for Democratic Central Committee and won. Ran for county commissioner. I think the voters thought I was a little young for that. And so uh, so I didn't win for that. But I went for central committee and got involved in local uh, Democratic politics. We're conservative Democrats here in the Eastern Shore. And um, and then graduated from Chesapeake College, uh, played baseball there, had a ball. It was just a great time um, and graduated with honors there with my Associate of Arts and then went to UMBC, University of Maryland, Baltimore County, got my history degree. I decided to major in history, Dale, because I loved history. I kept, yeah. you know, it just fascinated me. And I said, look, I'm a smart guy. I'll get a job. I don't need to like, you know, get a technical degree. Uh, I, I'm going to go into liberal arts and uh, I'll be, I'm probably going to work in government or something like that anyway. So I did, graduated there, cum laude in, uh, in 87. And then uh, married my high school sweetheart. Uh, Lisa Will was her name at the time. We had dated through uh, college off and on. And uh, when I graduated, um, got a job. Oh, because I ran for county commissioner, I met Irving Pinder, who was the head of the Department of Aging here in Queen Anne's County, because he was running for an office too. We both lost, <laughs> but uh, I'm telling you, one of the I got a st- chapter in my book about this, which is I've run for office three times. I've lost twice and won once. Well, I actually won the first time too for central committee, but uh, two out of three ain't bad, I guess. But uh, both times I lost the main offices I was running for, state's attorney and county commissioner. I got the best jobs ever after that right. uh, because I sure. ran a good campaign, made friends, relationships, and and actually worked out better than had I won. So later on, when I ran for state's attorney against Frank Craddeville, who became the nominee, Frank and I became good buddies. He won for state's attorney, and then I became county administrator. So I got to work with him to help implement our shared vision and all that stuff. So. Everything worked out awesome. So, but anyway, back to about this time. So, we got married, moved to Sutlersville, Maryland, started my family, and began working as the Queen Anne's County Department of Aging Transportation Coordinator. Irving Pinder had said to me, Paul, we need somebody to run. We have enough vans now. We're actually somebody to manage them, taking people to the senior centers, taking people to the doctors. Would you be our first transportation coordinator? I said, Yeah, sure. I, I want to work in government. I really feel like that's my calling, to be honest with you, is to help people in transportation, became transportation, but in government, helping people. I didn't. You know, my dad at one time wanted me to go into the quote ministry, you know, and I felt like, well, my ministry is whatever I'm doing to help people. I don't have to just focus on full time working in the church. And that's not really my call. I didn't feel like I wanted to do that. My wife agreed with me. I I wanted to work, you know, in what the church calls the secular world, so to speak, you know. And and so uh, this is where I've spent my career for the last 34 years. Basically, that job, that first job that I kind of fell into because I met a guy. 
I met this guy, Irvin Pender. That ended up shaping my career, Dale. Yeah. So, uh, so, so from there, um, I worked for seven years in the county uh, as a transportation coordinator. Irving asked me and the county commissioners at the time asked me to start a public transit system. Up until then, it had just been for the elderly and people with disabilities. So we started a program okay. called County Ride, which is the county's yep. first public bus system. I figured out personally you know, where the routes should go. I filed for all the grants. It's a great thing to start small in an agency like that. It was just me, a dispatcher, and like 10 drivers when we started. And so I got to do everything. I got to learn all the ropes about how to run a transit system. I, we created our own dispatch software uh, in Access Software. You remember that? Uh, and uh, where we could build a database of passengers yeah. and then you know, schedule them. And, and I learned all the basics of all that stuff. And, um, and then so County Ride became a thing, and we hired got buses from, from grants from the state and federal government um, and started what was called the Shore Shopper Shuttle. One of the things we did, I worked with Bobby Schock down at the Jetty and Karen Ortel, uh, and, we, and I got 50 businesses to donate money in Queen Anne's County to help me get a grant because the commissioner said, we don't have any extra money to match the grant. It was a 75-25 grant. And so I raised the 25%. They allowed me to do that from these businesses. And then on weekends, we could run a shuttle for people to get to the Kent Narrows and the outlets, which were back in the Kent Narrows back then. So it was awesome. I had such a fun time. I became president of the Transportation Association of Maryland, which represented all 25 or 26 small transit systems and medium-sized transit systems from Annapolis, you know, to Ocean City to Queen Anne's County. And so I was elected four times to four terms for that, to run that. And then in, uh, in 1991, County Ride won an award for the best community transportation system in America. And we won wow. that from CTAA, the Community Transportation Association of America. So I went to Orlando, Florida to get the award. And while I was there, I met a guy, Steve Fatante. He worked for a company called Mayflower. And he called me six months later and said, Paul, would you like to come work in the private sector? We manage city transit systems. And you could go into business development with us and help us win contracts. And it was a big raise. You know, Queen Anne's County is a great county, but I started out, Dale, at $14,876 in 1987 as my salary, which was almost at poverty level. I'm not kidding. I mean, sure. we, we, yeah. we qualified for WIC and all that back then, you know. And, um, and so, you know, this was a tough time financially for the county. One year we got no raises. And, uh, you know, we were – my wife was working as a mother and housewife full time. We, you know, we started having children and we ended up with six children, but we did four – Right off the bat, you know, like uh, within a year, she got pregnant. And so we had Joseph and then two years later, Amanda, and then two years later, Carrie, and then two years later, Daniel. So within, you know, uh, six or seven years of getting married, I had four kids. And so it was a, it was a lot at home. So I was happy to take this job. I, wow. fin- I feel like I finished up what I'd done here, you know, the seven year itch and, uh, and transportation. So I went to work for Mayflower and it was a whole wonderful world. During that time, though, I also decided to go to law school. Five years after I got married and five years after I graduated from University of Maryland, Baltimore County, I really felt drawn to go to law school. I'd always felt like I should become a lawyer. I felt like it would help me in my, in my career, not really to practice law necessarily. So I did. I went to um, University of Maryland School of Law and uh, went for four years at night. So I'd work during the day at Queen Anne's County in Centerville. And then Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I would drive to Baltimore City, be there by 625 for classes. And they would go till 10, 15 at night. And then I would drive home Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, and Sundays, I spent almost my whole day studying. It was very challenging work. And um, it wasn't hard. It was just a lot. You had to read you know, hundreds of pages of cases and, and all that stuff. So I did it for four years. And then four years later, graduated from 
with a JD, a doctorate degree, Juris Doctor. And I met a guy while I was there uh, who became one of the most important people in my life and one of my best friends, Joe Getty. Joe became very active in Bob Ehrlich's campaign for governor and worked for him. Uh, he was one of his campaign managers, and then he worked for Larry Hogan. And now he's on the Maryland Supreme Court as a uh, member of the Court of Appeals. And um, he was a delegate and a state senator from Carroll County. And we just, our families became friends. And he was an integral in kind of my career development as it went on. So got a chapter in that book, Full Throttle Call. I met a guy because that seems like every like good turn in my life has happened career-wise because I met a guy. So I, uh, I was an attorney using that, actually, using the, uh, my knowledge and abilities as an attorney to help do business development for my company, Mayflower. We got bought out by a company called Laidlaw out of Kansas City. Does the same thing. They were running school buses all over the country, the largest school bus contractor in the country. And they also were very big in paratransit, which is where I spent a lot of my career. Paratransit is vans that take people with disabilities where they need to go. It actually uh, really got formalized about 30 years ago when Congress passed the Americans with Disabilities Act, which mm -hmm. gave people with disabilities a civil right to transportation. So if they couldn't, you know, if you're in a wheelchair and you can't get out to the bus stop, we, we, the law now would require us to bring a van to the front curb of your house. And then you would sure. you know, ride to where you got to go and you can make an appointment. You could book an appointment one to seven days in advance and you can't charge them more than twice as much as what the fixed route buses charge. And so I got super involved in the Americans with Disabilities Act and implementing that. And, uh, you know, the National Easter Seal Society was involved and as head of the Transportation Association in Maryland and later co-chair of the Medical Assistance Transportation Group in Maryland, we really helped shape the guidelines for all that at the beginning here in the state to make sure that we were implementing that effectively. And I'm, I'm passionate about helping people with disabilities. I really feel like those who are physically vulnerable need transportation and mobility almost more than anyone, and we cannot leave them behind. Uh, we have to make sure that they are not disenfranchised and we help them. I mean, there's so many reasons why that makes sense, right? From a moral standpoint, helping those who are less fortunate, that's something America has always done, in my opinion, uh, is uh, to help people. It's one of our kind of you know, moral codes, I believe in at least. Sure, but then yeah. secondly, it makes sense from an economic perspective, right? If we, if we can allow people to stay at home without having to be put into nursing homes or care homes because they now have access to mobility and to all of life's opportunities, that's a lot cheaper in the long run than putting them in a facility paid for by tax dollars in the long run. And then also people with disabilities can participate in the job market uh, and they can get to their job and they can become, you know, they, they want to work most of the time if they can. I found that to be true. And so there's so many reasons to do it and to make an investment in making sure that they have access. So I worked for Laidlaw for a while and I won contracts, Dale, from uh, really interesting stuff, a little sidebar. So I won a contract to run uh, Microsoft Corporation's first on-campus shuttle in Redmond, Washington. Uh, they put out a bid and they wanted, they basically realized, you know, we got all these people in our campus, they had a two mile campus Microsoft did back in the nineties where they had buildings all over the place. And they had people that were having to go from building to building for meetings and they would have to, you know, go get in their car, start it up, warm it up, cool it down, whatever, then drive it to the other building, then park it and walk back. You know, it could take 20 minutes and time is money. So they wanted to start an on-campus shuttle system with minivans, 45 minivans that you could have somebody just pick up a phone, say, push a button, and then a van would be there at the front door when they got downstairs. It would take them where they wanted to go and drop them off, and it would save a lot of time and money for the corporation. So we did it. I won it, and we set it up, and it was an amazing year of I helped them get it all kind of started. It was fun. And I won contracts all the way across America, even to the Virgin Islands. In 1997, we won the Vitran contract. And I got to travel to St. Thomas and St. Croix 
five times, I think, that year. And we won the contract to basically have, you know, our employees, we hired locally, run their bus system called Virgin Island Transportation. So that's kind of the, you know, from one end of the country to the other, so to speak. And it was just, I felt like I was a traveling, you know, uh, salesman who was just having the time of his life. Uh, it was so much fun. My wife was very supportive and kind of ran the house day to day. And, and I worked out of my house. So when I wasn't traveling, I was home. So it was a good balance, I think. Um, yeah, no, so after a while, I would say real quick that the uh, the thing about transit is it's something that I think unless because this is awesome hearing kind of how this all works and why it exists and ADA and all that stuff, but like it's something I think just the everyday American probably takes it for granted. Like they just don't understand that how much work is going on behind the scenes just so yeah. that people can get around in the city. And our in their case with the county ride, man, like county ride, I couldn't imagine if you didn't have a car. Here in Queen Anne's County, like you're not, I mean, it's not like in the city we're in the rural, I call it yeah. Mayberry. Everyone talked to you out of here. Like, where are you from? I'm yeah. from Mayberry. You know, like, yeah. what do you mean Mayberry? Like Andy Griffey show. You see, I grew up there pretty much. Yeah. Like, and it's, uh, you know, it's so, I, but just it empowers people, right? Yes. But it's something that's just kind of happening and we see it, but we're not really understanding. So that, that's awesome. That, that yeah. really sheds a lot of light on that. A couple of things you brought to my mind when you were saying that about that. Uh, so, Back to the county ride story since you mentioned it. Just one little funny anecdote. I remember, you know, when we started it, it was very popular. You know, people that, like you said, that didn't have a way to get around used it a lot. We set up routes between uh, Kent Island and Centerville Center, uh, and then go to Easton and then some of them went to Chestertown. And uh, so if people are familiar with the geography around here, that moves into three different counties, basically, the, the service did. And we, we ended up connecting up with the other county's transportation system so you could transfer. Yeah. And eventually yeah. you could ride from – you know, Ken Island to Ocean City and back if right. you got the time transfers. Uh, and so, but I remember one time one of the county commissioners said to me, Paul, you got blow up dolls in those buses? I said, no, what do you mean? <laughs> he said, it looks like there's people in those buses. I can see them sitting there. The, the windows are tinted, so I can't see. But he said, I don't know anybody that rides. So you must have blow up dolls in there. I said, no, commissioner. I think that maybe you don't, you know, travel in the circles of people that actually ride this, but it is sure, very yeah. well used by the people in the county. One other thing, now switching forward back to being in business development, the other thing that did for me, Dale, was it really taught me, I had to learn the numbers. We had what's called a bid model, basically, a seven-page Excel spreadsheet at the time where you would I would have to plug in because I did all the pricing at the time. Now these companies have pricing managers. Back then, we were cowboys and cowgirls and we did our own you know, numbers. And uh, so I'd have to put in, you know, we'd, we'd analyze the scope of work that would be required to run, let's say, Vitran, use that as an example, in Virgin Islands. And so Okay, how many hours of service? How many drivers do we need? How many hours are they going to work? Build in all their benefits and payroll. Uh, and, uh, you know, they have 30 holidays in the Virgin Islands. So you have to know that. And I had to go to all these government buildings and figure out all the permits that were required. It was a labyrinthine process. And then, you know, we have to figure out maintenance of the vehicles. How much will that be? How many, how, what's the cost percents per mile for tires, for transmissions? for Because we're going to run this thing for five years. Normally, these contracts are five years long, three to five. And so I really learned the inside nuts and bolts of pricing out how to run a transportation system. And it really became invaluable later on when I moved into sure. higher executive positions to kind of know what's going on in the boiler room. You know, if you're a captain of a steamship, you know, you, you need to look. And that's one of the lessons in my, that I've taught people is, you know, uh, don't despise the day of small beginnings to use biblical language. You know, that's your time to learn, you know, be very happy. You haven't been thrown into a top management responsibility position without knowing that stuff. And when you're there, don't complain about having to shovel the coal into the boiler room. This is your time to learn how it all works. 
and know that you're going to use this knowledge later on when you're the captain of the ship. You know exactly what to do. Just a side story. Um, there was a fellow who I became friends with who was CEO of SEPTA, the Southeast Pennsylvania Transportation Authority in Philly. And I was visiting him one day to record him for my podcast, Transit Unplugged. And he was an engineer and had worked there for years and years. And he was on the phone just before I got there. A bus had gone over a um, gone over something and fallen down into uh, like over a bridge railing and falling down. And he was on the phone telling them engineering wise how to pull that bus out of there. And as the CEO, he knew how to do that safely because he had learned all that as an engineer. And I thought, what a perfect example of having grown up in the business and understanding how it really works and then using that knowledge effectively as the executive to make wise decisions. After that run uh, at Laidlaw, I was recruited by uh, a fellow by, by the name of Mark Joseph. And again, a guy that I had met along the way. Mark was president of Yellow Transportation in Baltimore. They had 700 cabs, yellow cabs, and they had a bunch of contracts to run transportation services. And um, Mark was a big Democrat, by the way, and we got along great. I had switched over, by the way. I know that this isn't a political show, but I don't mind talking about my political stripes. So after 10 years as a Democrat, I felt like the party kind of left me, kind of like Ronald Reagan said. You know, that I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. And as I got involved in statewide politics and became um, uh, active in Young Democrats and all that stuff, I felt like a lot of the party here was moving too far to the left for me. So I switched and became a Republican along the way and got active in Republican politics behind the scenes. And um, so uh, locally here and helped local candidates and things like that and ended up helping Bob Ehrlich run for governor and then later on Larry Hogan. But anyway uh, – Mark Joseph recruited me to become his vice president of national contracts. And he said, Paul, I basically you know, have this lo local company, Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area, and I want to grow it nationally. And you've done a great job winning contracts for these other national companies. Would you help me go national? I said, yeah. And he made me an offer, Dale. It's really interesting. He said, um, you write down on a sheet of paper everything you want, and I'll see if I can give it to you. So I did. I wrote down 10 things. You know, I want a car. I want to work from home. I want to be a vice president of the company. I want this. I want that. And he said, done. I'll give it all to you. <laughs> so, so I said, <laughs> well, if you're not going to take it when they offer it to you, you know, and he was the competition. So it was yeah. a big struggle for me to decide to go to work for him because I'd been working against him, you know, bidding on yeah. contracts against him. And that's probably why he wanted me because I beat him a few times, you know. Sure. And, uh, so anyway, we became good pals. And, you know, it was a respect relationship. Uh, you know, as you know, all relationships are based on respect. And um, I didn't always like him, but I always respected him because I didn't always, you know, we didn't always see eye to eye and everything. But anyway, I did that for a few years. We won some contracts, Connecticut, Salisbury, Maryland, other places. And then they called me and said, would you stop winning contracts? We literally cannot keep up the infrastructure to serve these contracts. We want you now to come to Savage, Maryland and become the general manager of several of the contracts you've won and some others and run them for us. And so I did that for several years and won four more contracts while I was there. So I ended up running 10 contracts from, um, you know, commuter buses going into Baltimore to we won the Georgetown shuttle contract. We won the Loudoun County commuter bus contract. We I was starting. I ran some school buses for a while for a year, two dozen school buses that we sold off to another company and uh, paratransit contracts. We ran Howard County Transit connect a ride in the city of Laurel, fixed route work, then paratransit. So I had a whole wide scope of work, medical assistance for Anne Arundel County. It was awesome. Fun work. We had a big facility, had hundreds of drivers, all, you know, a dozen different types of vehicles, really got to learn how maintenance operations work. I had a great maintenance director named Jerry Kreger and hired a bunch of people who became my friends and then became kind of the coterie that I've taken with me to job to job from them. People like John Duncan, uh, who I hired there as a young man in his 20s and later came with me to the MTA and became the chief operating officer of the MTA and now works with me at Trapeze. 
uh, other people like Jeff Barnett, who then who now runs Charles County's transportation program, and lots of other folks who were uh, we 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 bonded together. Those foxhole buddies, you know, and and I learned how to make money. I learned how you know for a big company, we made a million dollars profit. This uh, one of the years I was there, and um, uh, you know, on on thirteen fourteen million dollars worth of work. So it wasn't bad. The, the margins on this business are pretty low. Most of the times they're under ten percent, and uh, so. We had a great time. I learned how, you know, again, at a larger scale, bigger than Queen Anne's County, you know, with 15 vans. Now I'm at 200 vehicles, 150 to 200. And but but just just big enough where it's big, but small enough where I can still get my hands around everything and really sure. dig into the nuts and bolts. And I had a boss there named Jeff Hauser who was really hard on me. He was a chief operating officer. And he would make me, you know, do these P&L uh, responses every month. You have a profit and loss statement, you know. And he'd say, you know, why is this? Why is that? Why he was mean in his emails to me. I felt like, you know, at first he was friendly, but man, he had a sharp tongue writing, uh, and I didn't like him uh, as a result of that. But I'm telling you what, when I was done that job, I sent him a letter and thanked him so much for holding my feet to the fire and making me dig into the nuts and bolts on these answers. It made me such a better leader for that operation and also for future work. And so that's one of the lessons from that is, you know. It's okay to have your feet held to the fire. If you learn from that, you know, if you run from it, you're going to run around that mountain again later on in life, right? Yeah. But if you learn yeah. from that, from your tough times when bosses are really nailing you to the wall, so to speak, take it, take it like a man and, uh, and yeah. learn from that and become better. And that will make you a better person going long. So I want to pause right here and just give kind of three principal points. I think it's a good place to do it. Here's my three uh, I thought about it this morning before we we're going to talk, and I thought, these are my three keys to success for my life, I believe. There's lots of them. But one, number one, is to be adaptable. We have to be willing to change and adapt. So when the boss says to you, I need you to learn how to run these numbers, uh, even though you may not be a numbers person. Well, don't we have a finance person? No. Adapt and learn. Adaptability, you know, Darwin taught us, right? It's not the strongest that survive. It's the adaptable that survive. And he's right. I don't agree with everything Darwin said, but I agree with that one. And then I think we have to be principled. Even though you're going to adapt to how you do things, your principles have to remain strong. You cannot compromise your principles. If you have strongly held beliefs, I mean, I remember going in one time, and we'll get here in a minute, hopefully, uh, on my story. But I remember when I went in to see the Charles County commissioners, when I left Queen Anne's County to become their county administrator. And I said to them during the interview, don't ask me to lie. Don't ask me to cheat. Don't ask me to do anything immoral or unethical. I will not do it. I'm a Christian. I'm an attorney. I'm, I'm focused on, I live my life by my principles. And if you ask me to do those things, I will tell you, no, I know how local politics work. I know how sometimes people ask you to go into the gray areas. I'm okay to navigate the gray, but I'm not going to cross over that line uh, of what I consider unethical behavior. And I didn't. And I believe in the end that cost me my job there. That's, uh, but, um, but anyway, it's kind of funny that I said that to them up front, and then I was asked later by various people to do things, which I felt well, nothing was illegal. I just felt like it was over the line. I shouldn't do it. But anyway, you have to remain principled. And sometimes that'll cost you. It will. It will cost you if you stand up for your principles. And I'm not talking about being you know, stiff-necked and not willing to adapt and adjust. That's why my first principle is adaptable, right? You have to adapt, but you have to maintain some principles or else – you know, you'll fall for anything, so to speak. And then finally, the, the importance of relationships. Um, what I have found is that the relationships I have formed over the years have been a key to success for me. And that when I was thrown out of the boat, so to speak, by going full throttle, using the same analogy and hitting the waves and, you know, not, not cocking it down maybe when I should have, but keep going full throttle and I get thrown out of the boat. It's a friend of mine 
that was said, hey, come on into my boat over here and kept me afloat. And so those three things, adaptable, principled, and having strong relationships where you really care about people uh, and they know it. Uh, giving a story about, uh, and then I'll move on, a uh, story about that relationship. So there was a guy, and I have a chapter in my book, Full Throttle, called Jerry. There was an African-American friend of mine named Jerry who was uh, sent to me from Yellow Transportation Headquarters and said, you know, we're, we're going to assign this manager to you to help run your operations. So Jerry worked with me in my operations, and I loved the guy. We became, you know, fast friends, and uh, he was a football guy, uh, quarterback um, in his high school, and great guy, uh, a little bit older than me at the time. But Jerry wasn't super good on some details like finances and things like that. And he was responsible for an operation, our fixed route operation. And so I kept getting pressure from my bosses that, you know, the work he's giving us is not up to par uh, and we don't like it. And finally, my boss, Ron, said to me, you're going to have to let him go uh, because he's just not working out. We'd work with him for months and months. And I said, no, I'm, I'm not going to let him go. Um, sure. I love the guy. He's doing great work. I can prop up him with other people and myself to make sure that the areas I'll, I'll make it a focus of mine. Uh, I do not want to let him go. I mean, if you give me a direct order to do it, I'm going to do it. Right. I'm, I will obey my superiors, but he wasn't like, give me a direct order. He was like, it, I think it's time for you to let him go. And sure. uh, so I said, no, I, I don't want to, I want to, I want to salvage him and we can help him. You know, not everybody's strong in everything. Right. But he really relates to the drivers. He understands this and you can't always get that. You can't teach that. I can teach anybody how to do the finances side of thing and the budgets and the operating statistics. So I'll have somebody do his stats for him and I'll help him. So Ron said to me, well, okay, I'll let you keep him. But if he makes one more mistake, it's going to be your neck, not his. We're going to fire you, not him. So that got my attention, you know, like uh, uh, what's the boxer say, you know, nothing gets your attention like a punch to the jaw or whatever, you know. And so I talked to Jerry. I said, Jerry, I'm putting my neck on the line for you here, brother. Uh, let's do this together. Don't send in any of your reports unless I get a chance to review them first. And we're going to work on this together. And we did. And it was a great success story. But you know what? That my commitment to him, and I'm not saying that to you know brag on myself, or whatever, because I think in the end it helps me too, having a team of loyal, competent people that are all committed to each other, like a band of brothers and sisters. Uh, and and uh, but we we saved his job, and he went on to a great career. And um, you know we lost touch, and I'm not like his friend anymore. But uh, I've demonstrated that principle over and over and over again. And the principle is when you're in a position of leadership, obviously, if somebody's not doing a good job and you don't think they can succeed, you're not doing them a favor by keeping them around, right? You need to help them move on to something where they can be more successful. But when you know they can do it and you know they're a great person, right? You've done, I'm sure most of your listeners have read the book by Malcolm Gladwell Blink, you know, where you where you thin slice and you make decisions on people and you've evaluated this person and you know they're a quality person. Yeah, there's a couple areas where they need to improve, but you can help them there. And they can become even better. Then you have to cover your team. You have to, like a like a mother bird would cover her eggs and protect them. And uh, while when you cover them, when there's then they become your foxhole buddies, and they will then defend you for life. And and Dale, I've got friends from every single job I've had over my career who've asked me years later and told me, you know, we've never had a boss like you who would cover us. He wasn't only interested in his own rear end, but were interested in us too. Uh, and uh, we love you, and would have we'd love you to come back and work here. Uh, if you ever needed to. And so every single job I've had that at, and it's really, my father put that in me, my dad, Dr. William Comfort, he was very loyal to people as a minister and would minister to them and, and help them. And I, again, that's what my life is about. It's about making an impact and helping others. And the way you help them is not to throw them overboard when it's going to suit you and keep your rear end, you know, no, you, you can't make this. There's an African proverb, right? If you want to get there fast, go alone. 
you want to get there, so I don't know what the, I forget what it is, success, maybe not, but you go there together with a team, right? It's a little slower, but you've got a team to get you there. And I strongly believe in the team concept. I'm not all about, you know, me getting there fast to the top and walking over people's backs. I hate that. I hate people that do that. Uh, I've, I've, I've known a lot of people in my career and I hate them viscerally. And I believe there's a special place in hell. I'm not kidding for people who take advantage of other people who are weaker than them and step on their backs, take advantage of them to climb to the top. That ego that will, that will say, you know, I want to get there as fast as I can. I don't care how many people I have to hurt. That is a miserable uh, way to be a leader. And uh, I will do everything I can to destroy that philosophy. I really believe in the opposite philosophy, which is empower people, let them spread their wings and let them self-actualize. And if you have a team of self-actualized leaders around you, Man, you can move mountains. You can't do that by right. yourself. Well, I think so, like there's a principle I come back to often. Uh, I got talked to by uh, it got got brought to my attention uh, by someone I, that worked for me and great guy, very well, great in promotion. David Powell, David, if you hear this, man, we're gonna get you on a podcast one day because this concept I carry with me and I talk about a lot, which is what you're talking about is you're building trust capital with your team, right? You're investing yeah, in like their, the trust and the relationship, right? It's trust capital. And you even saying that about the, the the folks that don't do that, they do the opposite. They're 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 investing in mistrust capital, right? So when you invest, you know, when uh, using investing terms, you're you're investing capital. It's growing. It produces wealth, right? And trust capital, you're you're building a wealth of a team, a, a capable team, a loyal team, you know, a, a team that covers for one another. You know, if you're investing in mistrust capital. Well, that that hammer is going to drop, right? It's going to come, you know. And one day, that person's either going to look back and see the trail of dead bodies in their empty surroundings, or it, you know, they're going to reach their match in whatever it is. You understand? Like it's yeah. it's coming, right? That that yeah, you're either investing in the trust capital or you're investing in this mistrust capital. And if you're investing in, in either or, like you're going to the piper's going to get paid, and and that that trust capital. It's going to pay dividends. That mistrust capital—it's a long fall from from the top of that mountain, man. You run off the cliff, and it's it's. Uh, and I think too, like the thing about Jerry, you know, this mindset of, of not understanding people's overarching value on a team, right? With regard to Jerry, like he's he's obviously from your story, you can tell he was bringing value. So let's not take the the secondary item, you know, of of his finance reports or whatever it was, and throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Like Jerry's here because he's great at his primary objective here this secondary thing let's let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater right like hey let, we can we can compensate for that and and that's key you know because some yes. leaders like you said you hit the word like ego man just you gotta check that ego and it, it look as leaders i know when i was younger a sergeant marine corps i'll say and even in the first years of course where i was still uh you know full of piss and vinegar sergeant marine corps in my own head like you know that ego's there right you can't make a mistake no one can make a mistake and you're, you're pushing hard and you're accepting no faults and you want everything perfect and that's it took time to mature to learn that's not the that's not how you're going to get stuff done you're, you're actually going to spend a whole lot of time replacing your people when you should have been growing yeah, your pe- people, that's right. you know? But yeah. So Look, it's, I think these uh, being adaptable, knowing your, knowing your principles and building those relationships are, are key. And I think like, I, I, you know, one of the things I work with clients with and they go through an exercise where we say, we establish their principles. Like, Hey, what's the best, what's the three best words that describe you? Like, or, or, or the best version of you, if we want to get aspirationally, right? Good, and we yeah. go through and go, hey, how, who, what do you look like? If someone was going to describe you with three words, what would you want them to say, 
right? Well, oh, I, I'm a hard worker or, or I'm, I'm, I'm reliable or whatever, right? Like what, what are those words? And, and the other one is like, how do you want to interact with people? You know, when someone says, Hey, I'm, I'm thinking about hiring Paul, what, what, what should I expect from him, you know, in the team? Right. And again, well, what, what are those three words that you want someone to say about you and, and go write them down and bring clarity to what your principles are, right? Like what you stand for, who you are, what, um, because I would say, I feel like a lot of people don't have that, right? Uh, you know, when I went through that exercise the first time, I was like, wow, yeah, man, this is kind of, you know, and, and I have that, you know, I keep it inside my notebooks and things like that. Just always, and I do it even, you know, to remind myself when I'm going into social engagements, like, hey, how do I want to interact with people, right? I want to be yeah. present. I want to be engaged. I want to be, you know, interested, right? Yeah. I want to, instead of sitting there on my phone, you know, or, yeah. or trying to hurry up and get out of the conversation or, yeah. or avoiding small talk and things, right? It checks me. You know, so so those are awesome, and man, you you just hit on <laughs> so many great things. And I'm going to roll back to something that you hit on, you know, in in your passion with politics and this, because this is something that, you know, from a world of leadership, you know, what do you what do you say to someone who like me would say, I feel like man, there's where there's politics and there's leadership, and we need leadership in politics, but it seems like there's a there's a hole there. Like the power of leadership is what we need to lead this country, lead our communities. And you know, what, what is leadership to you in politics? Hi everyone. Dale here. I want to take a quick break to invite you to join us at lionsguide.com. Have you ever struggled to show up as your best when you really needed to most? Have you ever stared at your week and you just wondered how the heck am I going to fit all this in? Or worse, have you come to the end of your week and asked, how come you didn't get done what you wanted to? Or maybe have you ever struggled to gain influence at work or home? Or have you felt as if you are a productive person, but you really don't know where you're going or what you want? So the distractions of social media or maybe Netflix take over your day. If any of that sounds like you, I want you to know that you're not alone and invite you to visit us online at lionsguide.com and subscribe to the Lions Guide newsletter or maybe even download some of our free guides to help you on your journey. The time is now to transition to the next level in your performance and personal growth and have some joy in life. Visit lionsguide.com and subscribe today. You owe it to yourself and those most important to you to be the best version of you. Don't lose any more time. Subscribe today. I can't wait to see who you're going to become. And now back to the show. Can I, I want to give you a corollary to the Jerry story and then, I can, then I'll answer that if it's okay. One other quick principle that's a corollary to that is that if you ask, my belief is that if you ask someone, a subordinate, to take on a new responsibility and they go out on that limb for you, don't saw it off if they can't accomplish yeah. it. Give them a right to retreat. Right. And I've, I've used yeah. that over and over again in my career. So I'll ask somebody, you know, like a Jerry, Jerry, uh, I'd like to, you to take on these additional responsibilities and be like, no, I'm not, that's not really my forte, Paul. Yeah, but I need you to do it uh, where there's no one else. And so, okay. I said, but here's the, if you go out there and you can't get it done, I'll allow you to retreat to that former position. We may not be able to hold your old position for you. So let's say it's a promotion to a brand new position, but we'll find a yep. position in the agency for you uh, that you can retreat to. Uh, but I, I want you to stretch. I'm going to provide you the education and tools to, to be a success. But if in the end, after six months to a year, we determine that you're not able to do that, then I'll let you go back. We won't saw off the branch just because you took that hill for me and you weren't, you tried yeah. to take the hill and you weren't able to. 
anyway, that's I love a, that. Yeah. I think that's, no, a, that's that, I mean, look, that's core, man. I love that. That's, that's yeah. big. You know, yeah. Take note leaders out there. Yeah. So on to politics for just a moment. And actually this is a perfect segue. So let me just segue to it and then we'll go into it. So at the sure. end of my time, we'll go back to my career story. After five years there at Yellow Transportation, I decided I want to get more involved in politics. Uh, there was a lady who had run for governor here in Maryland as our Republican nominee who asked me to run for state's attorney here in Queen Anne's County. At the time, state's attorney was a part-time job. Chip Gregory had had it for 20 years, but it just had become a full-time job. And she felt like the Republicans should run for it here. And, and I was an attorney and I could do it. So I ended up deciding I would run. I informed my boss about it, Mark and all them. So I ran for state. He supported me, gave me a donation, I believe, at the time. I ran a campaign on a new vision of justice. I had not practiced law. So it was kind of, you know, it was iffy for me to run for state's attorney in the sense that sure. I was an attorney, but I was running more not in the sense of being a prosecutor in the court, more about what I call the new vision of justice, which I still believe in. And I think that you've seen a lot of criminal reform over the last 10 years that aligned with what I was talking about at the time, this new vision of justice. And um, so it ended up Chip was uh, lost in his primary, Democratic primary, to Frank Craddeville, who was an assistant. And Frank was a hard-charging young assistant, came from Prince George's County, moved here and became a really big part of the state's attorney's office. And he won the Democratic primary. I wasn't planning on running against Chip. I mean, running against Frank. I didn't have a campaign strategy against him. My campaign strategy (laughs) was against Chip who had been here 20 years and just basically it was time for a change. Uh, back to the you. boxing analogy. They changed the fighter on you. Your game plan was for a different fighter. Yeah, I get in the ring with this young buck who knocks me, for, does a knockout <laughs> punch on me. You know, I remember going door to door. I went to 2000 doors. And I remember going door to door in um, Harbor View and having people say, oh yeah, you're running against that nice young blonde man that came here last week. He said that you didn't have any courtroom experience. <laughs> And I said, yeah, he's right, actually. But I've got a new vision of justice, blah, blah. So he ended up beating me, you know, 57 to 43. We buried the hatchet after, not in each other's back. You know, we it got a little hot and heavy like it always does in campaigns. But he won. And he was an awesome state's attorney, in my opinion. Did a great job. And then I met a guy, right? So the county commissioners who were running for that county, we were all, you know, local campaigns, all the politicians go to all the parades and the candidate nights together. And you get to know each other. And so people like Gene Ransom and others Uh, had won for county commissioner then. And then they asked me to apply for county administrator, which was the CEO of the county government. And I did. And they selected me. And so I switched out of being working in transportation to coming back to county government, where I had worked for seven years. So I knew how county government worked because I'd been, you know, the transportation coordinator. So I had a good knowledge of county government. And it was probably, Dale, the best job Charles County might have been a little bit better in the, in the larger sense, but it was the most fun job I've ever had because it wasn't just one topic, right? We had an airport. We worked with the sheriff's office. I learned how to build detention centers. I went to a, you know, we expanded our detention center, planning and zoning, parks and recreation, all the different facets. I love the variety of government. We had a great team. I built a good team of county department heads, people like Steve Walls at the time and others was uh, became my head of uh, public works and um just awesome. Learned how to you know, do sewer plants and all that, which is a whole new area, right? And so did that for four years, became president of the Maryland County Administrators Association, was reelected to that for four, the whole four times I ran. I was here for four years. Uh, and uh, and then in um, while I was in that role, uh, the Charles County Administrator had, had left. Uh, and uh, so the acting administrator came to me and said, Paul, I think you'd be perfect for this job over here. It's a county three times as big as Queen Anne's County, and we need somebody with your skills. And so I applied there, did a lot of background work, and got the, got the job as county administrator in Charles County, where I ran their government. And they they had a um, 
Here we had a $100 million operating budget. There they had a $300 million operating budget plus capital budget, much bigger. So I moved my family to La Plata and lived there for five years and did that job. And that probably the first two years was the most fun, exciting, brand new. I never thought I'd leave the shore, but uh, it was such a great opportunity. And I was interested in potentially running for governor eventually. And I was advised by a lot of um, you know people who are involved in politics that really the center of gravity in politics has moved this to the D.C. area from Baltimore. And you should move there. And this job opened up. So I said, you know, it aligns with what I want to do professionally, but also politically, potentially in the future. So I got real involved uh, there in government and uh, became friends with people like Mac Middleton, who was a state senator there and, and you know, worked with the state legislature and the counties and and uh, worked with all the counties in Maryland in my role through MACO, the Maryland Association of Counties, as head of the County Administrators Association. And uh, it really, uh, so I did that for six years total, four in Queen Anne's and two there. Uh, and then um, I left Charles County, not of my own will, uh, after I was, um, I won't go into the story on a podcast. You and I can talk about it one time over a drink or something. But uh, basically, uh, I would not do what was asked of me of three of the five commissioners. They asked me to do things that I said I would not do. And one day, they, one of the commissioners put his arm around me, walked me down the hall and said, it's a shame you won't do what we're asking you to do. So um, you go ahead and take this trip, this economic development trip to Paris. And when you come back, we're going to fire you. And uh, they had asked me to go to Paris to the Paris Air Show because we were building, there's a there's a naval base in Charles County, and we were building, we wanted to build a business, a naval business park. And I was going over there to meet with Martin Baker, the manufacturer of ejection seats for military aircraft, who was going to be the base tenant. And they had lined up visits for us through the Maryland Department of Commerce to, and so we met and we had six companies that were interested in coming and being our business park. And that's exactly what happened to me. I came back and it was my two-year review, and they said, you know, not for cause. You have a six-month severance package. We're just going to move in a different direction. And uh, so they released me from my contract, not for cause. And it was a shock to me because I was you know, very invested in that job, and I'd moved my family and only lived there for two years. And it's funny. I haven't told the story publicly, but at the time, I was interested in becoming president of Chesapeake College right when I left. And there was a president there who was getting ready to retire. And I was very active in the community college as one of the four administ- five administrators who was involved in overseeing the budgets and all that stuff. And I w- I'm a strong believer and passionate believer in community colleges. While I was here in Queen Anne's County, we did a sister city relationship with Sucho, China, and we built the county's uh, television station, QAC-TV. We started that while I was here. My passion, I, all, all along the way, by the way, I'd been very involved in radio. I had a part-time job at WCTR in Chestertown for 16 years during this whole first part of my career. We're on weekends, and then eventually, uh, two or three days a week, I would do a show with basically like a Paul Harvey radio show, where I'd interview local newsmakers, kind of like you're doing here. Uh, and we did it in the front window of Callahan's Gas and Appliance for a while, and then we, and then we did it. Uh, you know, <laughs> like the one in Centerville? Yeah, yeah. So I, I oh wow, that's awesome. In the front window, I had a table, and we would interview guests and Bob Salit, the county administrator or a local delegate. And so I kept my hand in all this stuff and did some work for UPI reporting on elections, and I was uh, and worked for a no- local newspaper called the Pilot Newspaper, which was run by Steve Meehan. I was one of the first reporters and. Uh, a columnist and a photographer, and so, and then started a radio show called Power Minute that I uh, that I sent out to eleven radio stations uh, during this time. One one minute show where we would talk about a power thought for the day, and got uh, advertisers. Did all that on the side. It's very uh, so. My three loves in life are music, media, and politics. So I, you know, I had a band when I was in college called Sons of Thunder. My son has gone on and started a band called the Hot Tub Limo that they've been very active here locally. He's a drummer. Oh yeah, man, yeah. very popular. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I've been involved with their band, played with them, sat in guest shots with them. And actually, that's part of the reason why I have tinnitus now, uh, because uh, too much 
you know, in the last 10 years sitting close to the speakers. And I sure. lost 30% of my hearing in my left ear as a result of that. And now I have tinnitus. Wow. Um, but um, I don't blame the music entirely, but I think that had a lot to do with it. I remember well, you being- did, You're doing what you love lunch. though, right? Like yeah, there's yeah. a cost in yeah, doing exactly. what you love. That's right, yeah. So, so but musicians need to wear earpieces. That's my lesson for people, you know, protect your ears. So music, you know, I still play keyboard. I, I like to play, sometimes I do shows on Facebook for people. Other times I do- go down to the brewery and play, you know, at, at the open night, you know, uh, classic brewery at open mic night and things like that. And then media, I've always been involved in the media, radio, TV. When I went to Charles County, I expanded their television station, hired the guy that built out Fox news studio to be our, uh, we built out a million dollar studio there in the County building. So we could have cable access shows and work with the community colleges and board of education to get stuff out there. Uh, so love the media and then politics, right? Government. So those are my three kind of passions that I've always followed along the way. So this was my foray into local government. I loved it. I still love it. Very, very passionate about that. So I left Charles County, uh, not on my own free will, but again, because I had a friend, a guy named John Monson, who was CEO of a company called MV Transportation. He had been my boss at Laidlaw and Mayflower. And he told me, if you ever need a job, I'll hire you because you know I think you're awesome. So I needed a job. So I, uh, I left Charles County. I applied for all kinds of jobs. I tried to become a Chick-fil-A operator for the one on Kent Island, actually, uh, and the one in, um, in Brandywine and got an interview, worked my way up and actually was interviewed by the grandson of uh, Tariq Cathy uh, and, uh, and the local guy, Brandon Bray. And they decided, yeah, they don't tell you why, but I heard through my friends who were sponsoring me who own Chick-fil-A's that, uh, you know, they felt like your heart really wasn't in it long term, that you're still interested in government politics too much. And, you know, so, <laughs> you're wearing I mean, it that's, on your sleeve. They see you coming. Yeah, you know, because I remember <laughs> yeah. asking them, hey, can I run for county commissioner even if I own a Chick-fil-A store? And um, so I don't think that was the right question to ask. And I, I uh, was a finalist <laughs> for the job to become county administrator in Horry County, South Carolina, where Myrtle Beach is. I didn't get that job. I, was, I thought that'd be awesome. That's our family vacation spot we go to every June. Uh, and other jobs, you know, I applied maybe to become the executive director of the National Adoption Council, uh, which I'm friends with Chuck, the guy who has that job now. He was like the number two guy was interested in me applying. So I tried all these jobs. Nothing worked. So I ended up back in transportation. So uh, John Monson said to me, listen, we've got the single biggest transportation contract in America in Washington, D.C. It's $100 million a year. We run the paratransit service there. And could you go there and help us run it? And I said, yes, I will do that. So for three years, I commuted from La Plata, and then eventually we moved back to Queen Anne's County. But it became the toughest job, Dale, in my career. For five years, it was miserable existence. The bosses there were miserable, in my opinion, and I hated my job almost every day. And many times I'd come home literally screaming on the phone to my wife, I hate my job! And it was because they treated us terribly. They treated us like we were pawns in some political game. Uh, I've never been treated as poorly, personally, as I was there devalued. Uh, they would joke about the seven magic words. Please remove Paul Comfort from this contract. We'd be in meetings and they'd say, all it takes is me to send that letter and you lose your job. They would talk about my tie. Your tie is askew a little bit in the meeting. You know, The back uh, dongle or whatever they call it is out a little bit. You need to leave the meeting room, straighten your tie and come back in in front of my subordinates and my superiors. That's the kind of nonsense, psychological warfare and gamesmanship that was going on there by a bunch of young people who, um, you know, I knew a lot more than them about transportation, I felt like, and they had a two-year career in transportation and were going to tell us how to run this big operation. So I won't go into it anymore. Than those, those guys that, that have that, right? It's, again, back to maturity and leadership, right? You know, the you, you got to learn it. And, and, and if you're, if you're a long, young leader out there, I'll give you a key to success and it's humility. You know, uh, you've got to have some humility and ask questions and seek to understand 
you know, before you want, before you're understood, right? I think yeah. that's Stephen, one of Stephen Covey's habits or whatever, but right. yeah, if you seek to understand and then to be understood, right? You don't need to crack the whip, you know, uh, my longtime CFO and partner used to always say like, you know, you can, you can attract flies with shit or you can flack tries flies with honey. And uh-huh. when you rather deal with honey than deal with shit, yeah. you know, it's like, and, and, and it's, there's truth in that. And, and, and it doesn't people. ultimately serve. Yeah. You have to treat people respect, with respect. Yeah. yeah. You can't, yeah. you can't treat, especially professional, you know, anybody, but um, you know, you, and I, I was not, nor was almost anyone treated there with respect. So in the end it was great. Again, I, I became a much, I had a boss at MV who I loved. His name was Leland Peterson, uh, who really taught me a lot while there. He's a real technical guru. Uh, and he taught me a lot about the technology side of things. And we, we used Trappy software, by the way, while I was there, which is where I ended up working. I never thought I'd work for a software company. Uh, but I got to be a power user of their what's called PASS software, which is the number one software in America that's used to you know, make reservations, schedule, and um, dispatch uh, trips for paratransit, people with disabilities. So we ended up becoming the fourth largest paratransit system in America by the number of trips a day, eight to 10,000 trips a day. And uh, we had 12 garages, and I oversaw the 12 garages and buses all over northern Virginia, Washington, D.C., and Maryland. And then after three years, we took over just the call center, and I managed the call center day to day and really got to learn how to run an operations control center. We had you know, 60 reservationists, uh, 75 dispatchers, a scheduling team, and all the stuff that goes with it. Uh, and we ended up becoming successful. There was a, a man there named Christian Kent who oversaw the whole operation. He was not the way I described some of the other folks. These were other folks that worked there. He was great to work for uh, and, is, and was a friend of mine prior to me working there. Uh, but he helped us and agreed with some of my recommendations on adopting new principles for safety. So we were measuring, this is a little bit in the weeds, but we were measuring every incident as an accident. So for instance, if you were driving a van, we had drive cams in them. So if you hit any gravity, like if you hit a curb, cut in a parking lot of an Acme and you bump into it, it would activate the camera and that would be counted as an accident. Well, that's not an accident. That's an incident. An accident by the National Safety Council definition is, you know, anytime when you have property damage or injury to person, that's what's a, uh, that's, that's an accident. And so we were measuring things that weren't accidents and it was making our accident preventable, our preventable accident and our regular accident rate way too high because we were measuring the wrong thing. And this is a principle in life that i you know, talk about all the time, having the right KPIs, the key performance indicators. In a larger sense, you don't want to climb the ladder of success your whole life only to find out at the end it was leaning against the wrong wall. So you don't, you, you have to make sure you, you know where you're going. And then along the way, you have to have the right key performance indicators, the measurements that measure your iterative progress towards your goals. So this one was wrong. And I spent six months lobbying Christian. And finally, he got the whole agency to agree to this new definition. And as a result of that, we could still count the incident when you bump the curb and counsel the driver about how to do that, but it wasn't counted as an accident. So now our preventable AFR rate went down and we were within the goal of two preventable accidents per 100,000 miles. And our on-time performance rate was above the 92% standard. So we weren't getting liquidated damages and we saved you know hundreds of thousands of dollars for our company. I did that for a while. And then uh, I uh, decided to, as I said, you know, my wife and I said, let's move back home. So we moved back to Queen Anne's County uh, because there's no need for me to be in Charles County anymore. I didn't have a job there. So we moved back to the same neighborhood that I'd lived in before for eight years at just a different house down the street. And now we've lived here for eight years again. It's uh, perfect symmetry. And I lived in Charles County for five years to the day. We moved on Father's Day. Five years later, we moved back home on Father's Day. You know, how does that kind of symmetry happen? It's amazing. So it was a chapter in my life, almost like a story, you know, five 
boop, that page is turned. So we moved back home. And then um, while I was there and uh, I got the political bug and it was still biting me. And so I decided to run for county commissioner again in 2014. And I won. I became the top vote getter in Queen Anne's County that year. Uh, and uh, I ran on a slate with four other, with three other candidates. And so we won four out of the five seats. And I made promises, six promises, uh, such as getting rid of the uh, beach permit fee. I felt like that was ridiculous. We didn't need to be charging people who have already paid for these beaches to park there. And, uh, and so we, I won. We got all six things done in the first six months. And then Governor Larry Hogan, who was a friend of mine that he ran at the same time for governor, asked me to become the head of the MTA, the Maryland Transit Administration. He said, Paul, you're an attorney. You've had a career in uh, transportation and you've run local governments. So you understand how government works. He said, I need you to come here and kind of help me with the MTA because it's, it may be the worst run agency in state government. At the time, the MTA was the 11th largest transit system in America. It is the Baltimore City transit system, although Baltimore City puts no money into it. It's all paid for by state tax dollars. Uh, and uh, it runs a bus system, a light rail system, a subway system, a commuter train called Mark, which takes people into Washington, D.C., uh, to Union Station, a commuter bus system with 350 buses contracted out to the private sector, seven motor coach companies, which bring people from southern Maryland, the eastern shore and other places into D.C. and Baltimore, and then a big paratransit service. So I was uh, I hated to leave the job as Queen Anne's County Commissioner because I loved it. Stevie Wilson, I remember telling me, don't leave us, Paul. But it was a career <laughs> dream, you know, to take to become head of this transit agency. It has an awesome office uh, at the top of 6 St. Paul Street. And uh, so I did that, and it was a, a dream come true. I really thank Governor Hogan for the opportunity to do that. Uh, and uh, while I was there, we did all kinds of things, which I won't get into, uh, but I'll just give you two or three. We had a radio station that was uh, – that was, um, not on the air. We did not have a radio station. We had a we had a group of people that would call in television stations uh, every day and radio stations to tell them about transit information. So the guy there, Mark Jones, who was head of broadcast, uh, already had a license, a low power FM license, but no one ever authorized him to make a station. So we went ahead and authorized him to build the radio station, and we did. We built a uh, WTTZ AM. Uh, sorry, FM, 93.5 FM, WTTZ. That's how he said it. And um, <laughs> uh, and we played smooth jazz all day long. A lot of local stuff, Ella Fitzgerald and, you know, uh, Herbie, all the people from Baltimore. We've, we've emphasized a lot of the jazz music from uh, from Baltimore. Uh, and uh, and then traffic and transit updates four times an hour. It became one of the things that I would love. We won local. We had a television show called Commuter Connections. It was broadcast in a million households all over Maryland and D.C., and we grew that and won local Emmy Awards and, and uh, did it. we worked uh, with Baltimore City Cable TV to help film that. Uh, so the, on the media side, I was able to turn the job kind of into what I like it to be, right? So, And then I had a regular television uh, appearance every month on Channel 45, Fox 45, where I would go in and talk about the latest things happening uh, at, at, our, uh, at our transit system. And then we rebooted the transit system itself. That's the second thing. We created a program called Baltimore Link. We'd had five years of declining ridership. And also, those six modes I talked about, they weren't connected. The bus routes were laid 50 years ago were laid out. They were following a lot of the old trolley routes. Two-thirds of them went to the central business district where they followed each other down Baltimore Street, all bunched up. Terrible, terrible service. Probably 55% on-time performance. One of the worst in the country when I got there. But the, the the light rail system, remember Governor Schaefer had built that to make sure it was open on the opening day of Camden Yards, and they got it open on that right. opening day. But that was laid out 25 years ago. And then there was a subway system, a small subway system, but it pops up under Johns Hopkins. That's one of the main uh, hospitals, one of the main stops. And then the commuter train system, and they all go through Baltimore, but none of them linked up. 
They were actually run as separate agent, almost separate services. So there might be a couple spots where you could walk a block and get from the bus to the train station, but there wasn't really any linkage. So we rebooted the whole network. We, there had been data collected prior to me getting there called the Bus Network Improvement Project. And um, so we used that data plus some more. Kevin Quinn was our head of planning and really was the architect of this. He ended up becoming the administrator after me and has done a wonderful job. Uh, and um, so we rebooted the whole network and called Baltimore Link, where we linked up all the systems. So now you could... Ride the light, ride the bus to the light rail, and then transfer. You know, uh, we had to improve our technology, et cetera. And the last thing we did was we tried to reboot the culture of the agency. The agency had become more abound, and the culture. There was five thousand employees and contractors. There was a big agency, a billion dollar budget. So I kind of rebooted that, reorganized the structure, brought in outside professionals uh, to a lot of the senior executive positions, and I was able to do that for two years. When you're a change agent, sometimes you know. Uh, you're not able to stay in a position for a long time. And so I was able to stay there for a little over two years, which was the average. There had been 10 administrators over the previous 20 years. So the average length there is about two years. It's a high turnover job. It's like, you know, White House press secretary, right? You know, when you go in, you're not going to last more than a year or two. So I was able to do that and uh, had a wonderful time, wonderful experience, and so thankful for the opportunity there. And then when I left there, I, uh, I had lots of opportunities. I was offered jobs all over the country to run bus systems and transit systems for private companies, et cetera. Uh, but I ended up taking the job that would let me work from home <laughs> because I'd been on the road for a long time. And a lot of the weight had fallen to my wife in raising our children. We had two more children, Melissa and Jenna, after the first four. And, uh, and she's a wonderful mother for them. Uh, but um, I, I needed to be home more. I'd been on the road for 10 years, basically, you know. At WMATA, I was leaving in the house at six in the morning, getting home at seven at night. At the MTA, the same kind of thing, same kind of hours, you know, long hours, 10, 12 hour days. So uh, I took this job four years ago, actually, right now, and became uh, vice president of the company and just recently got promoted to senior vice president and chief customer officer. Trapeze is a global software company uh, that provides, you know, 70 to 100 different software and hardware products to transit agencies from Singapore to London to Australia to, you know, Zurich, where I've been able to visit, uh, and all over North America, where the largest transit technology company. And my job basically is to be their industry ambassador. So I connect them with the C-suite of the customers and uh, uh, the chief customer officer. And then I'm the thought leader. So I do a lot of writing, speaking at conferences. Just after this, I'm being interviewed by Mass Transit Magazine and uh, wrote some books on transportation. One of them is called uh, The One on the Wall Behind Me. Went to number one last year. It's called The Future of Public Transportation. It's me and 40 of my friends who are the lead, some of the world's leading experts in public transportation, futurists, you know, from Monash University in Australia to to uh, 10 CEOs, to the heads of our uh, national and international associations. So they all wrote chapters on what the future public transportation would be. That was published in March. And then um, during COVID, during our lockdown, my COVID lockdown project was to write a children's book called Public Transportation from the Tom Thumb Railroad to Hyperloop and Beyond. And there's a Baltimore connection, right? Because the B&O Railroad awesome. was the first railroad and was started sure. right down from my office in Baltimore. And so I did that I, I crowdsourced it. I put it out on LinkedIn and said, will somebody be my artist? And I ended up with a fella in India that we ended up having a date every Sunday morning for five months. We would Zoom and I would, okay. we would talk about it. I gave him a storyboard and all that. And so it turned out it went to number one in October of last year on Amazon, the number one best-selling book on transportation. <laughs> and uh, so awesome. it's become – both books have become worldwide phenomenons and, and, and sell pretty well. The other thing I'm able to do now is the they asked me, because of my interest in broadcasting, et cetera, they said, would you like to start a podcast for us? And as you know, Dale, podcasting is the new radio. So I was like, sure. And I know exactly what I want it to be. I want to interview CEOs because I just left being a CEO of transit systems around the country and the world and have them tell their own story, Transit Unplugged. 
most of the time when a CEO is interviewed, it's all, you know, you know, why did their train derail? <laughs> and, uh, and so this would give them a chance to kind of tell their story. So I use Aristotelian logic, right? Three-part logic. The Western mind is wired to think in threes, I think. So it's the past, it's the present, and it's their future. And it's a half-hour show. It's turned out to be the number one transportation executive podcast in the world. We're heard in 99 countries. Uh, and, uh, you know, every week I get emails from Chartable, you know, you've charted in Portugal, you know, you're ranked 45 this week on business podcasts. And so it's really become cool. And the first 60 shows I was able to do in person, I visited 60 transit systems around the world uh, for two and a half years before COVID. Uh, I think more than anyone else. I think I visited more transit than there's no one else that I know that's wow. done that. So I, you know, went for a week in Australia and visited seven transit systems for a week in uh, the United Kingdom and visited six transit systems, you know, from, uh, you know, uh, I went to Zurich and visited theirs, got to see the first autonomous vehicles in, in public transportation that our company Trapeze helped do in the Rhineland, uh, in Rhine Falls in Switzerland. Uh, and then Denmark, you know, Flex Denmark, and then all over America and Canada, I've interviewed these people, visited their transit systems. And over the last year during COVID, I was going to do a book tour for that book behind me. Uh, and I only ended up being able to do the very first one right here in Centerville, Maryland. Uh, the very first show, right before COVID. <laughs> is it the Creamery? Was that the yeah, Creamery? The creamery. Yeah, yeah. So right, yeah, awesome. I remember. It was fun. We did a book signing. And I had a sponsor. We even had t-shirts. I mean, it was a sponsored uh, women in transportation seminar, young professionals in transportation, and several of my companies that I work with. Because Trapeze is a series. It has a bunch of sister companies called TripSpark and others. And they were all going to sponsor me to have these big events, you know, in Toronto, New York, Singapore, all over. But it all got canceled, obviously. But, you know, the silver lining behind that was I've been able to help so many more people, I think, as a result of this. I've spoken 100 times as of yesterday, I think, at conferences and events over the last year or so through, via Zoom. And I've been able to yeah. do drop-in uh, speaking engagements at transit systems from New Zealand you know, to uh, British Columbia, where they have me as a guest speaker on Zoom. And I talk about the future of public transportation, what are the latest trends, et cetera. So I'm having a wonderful time. I have a wonderful boss, uh, um, Steve Sawyer, who's head of our group of companies. I work now really for three companies, Trapeze, a sister company we opened up this year called Vontis, which has a manufacturing plant in Iowa that builds a lot of fairing equipment and, and all that kind of stuff there and computers for the buses and things. We basically everything you need to run a transit system, we won't except for the tracks, you know, and the vehicles we've got, we, our company sells it. And, uh, and I don't sell per se. I'm not a salesman, although I work a lot with the sales and marketing team. My goal basically they've, they've given me, is to connect with people, right. And to put yeah, best practices absolutely. out there and technology is what's required anyway. So to talk about the, the, the technology needs, I'm, I'm speaking at a conference in Australia next week, with 600 people, uh, and I'm the keynote speaker on it, you know, and then the head of transit in Sydney is there, and the head of transit in Singapore is there, and the head of transit in Adelaide, and they're on a panel after me. And so this is the kind of things I'm able to do now is to share best practices that I'm learning from these CEOs in the podcast. The podcast is called Transit Unplugged. If you want to subscribe, it's free. It comes out once a week, and it's fun. It's very interesting. We do uh, lots of – one show is just a long-form interview, and then the next week it's more called Comfort's Corner where I do news and information and a shorter interview with a newsmaker who may not be a CEO. You know, like I just did one with Valerie Nielsen, who's um, at the Transportation Planning Agency in Palm Beach, Florida. And we talk about all the things they're doing in Palm Beach. Uh, so let's let's wrap it all up. So that's where I'm at now. <laughs> yeah. So uh, to, to kind of wrap it all up, uh, I would say uh, there's one lesson I want to leave with people, one or two. One is uh, crisis is opportunity. So if there's a crisis like COVID, the lesson I just taught you was it's miserable. Um, I caught COVID. I was I caught COVID. I was down for a couple of weeks. It was it was miserable. 
And so I understand, you know, it's real. It hurts. <laughs> I got pneumonia out of it, you know, and everything. I'm, I'm recovered now, but uh, <clears throat> it was a rough few weeks there. So I know it's real and it's terrible, but it's also been an opportunity for me, right? And so during this time of COVID, <clears throat> I was able to pick up a side gig. My company let me do it. Six of the large companies, the largest companies in America that run transportation contracting. These are people like the companies I used to work for, like Mayflower and Laidlaw that I talked about that manage. So these companies are First Transit, TransDev, Keolis, National Express, RITP, Dev, and MV. The six CEOs formed an industry association to promote contracting and to make sure that the CARES Act funding would be able to flow from transit agencies. This was uh, you know, stimulus funding, so to speak, down to these companies that manage mostly their paratransit services and some fixed route work. So they hired me to become the president and executive director of the association. So I had, you know, we have, uh, I don't know, 100,000 employees across North America. Uh, we operate 15 to 20% of the total transit service in North America. It's operated by these six companies. And so I'm able to work with them. We have lobbyists on Capitol Hill. We have communications firms. And I have a working group that I'm working on to promote public transportation and the contracting of it, which is very efficient, right? So usually private companies can do things maybe 20% cheaper than the public sector can. And they have global experience. So they bring all that and they can do, you know, bulk purchasing of parts for buses because they have 100 contracts in America, those kind of things. So there's a lot of value to contracting, and I strongly believe in it, the involvement, you know, the public-private partnership. So I've been able to – that was something that came out of COVID, right? So while there was a crisis, I was looking for opportunity, this book and the opportunity to speak around the world. So one is if you're in a crisis point in your career or in your life, look for the opportunities. And the way you find the opportunities, I think, Dale, is my second point, which is this. I believe that your destiny – has an X spot on it, just like you know Bugs Bunny would be looking for. Oh, here's the spot where I need to find. You know the X. There is an X spot, and here's how you find it. In my opinion, I've given this. I gave the commencement address at Chesapeake College and high schools, and I've used this over and over and over again. The X spot is where your interests and your abilities intersect. So it's not. It's not what you think or your mom thinks you're good at, right? It's what you are good at. What you have been told by others and you've experienced. That's what you're good at and what you're interested in. You can find that spot. For me, it's communications, it's uh, building teams, networking, connecting people, right? And administration leadership. Those are my three kind of skill sets that I've identified. And then I overlay them with my interests and I find a sweet spot. And you can turn your job into what you want sometimes, what you're good at. And that's how, you know, you can't do everything, right? There's a book called Strength Finder. It says you're not good at everything. Figure out what your strengths are and then figure out where your interests are, overlay them. And then, you know, like they say, if you do what you love, you'll never really work a day in your life, right? Because you enjoy what you're doing. It's almost like your hobby. So that, and then I think the last lesson I want to leave with people is you need to understand the why of what you're doing, right? Simon Sinek talks about that. Why I'm doing what I'm doing is because I want to help people, especially people who are vulnerable. I want to promote equity and inclusion and transportation and make sure that no one is left behind. And then figure out, uh, it's like a reporter would do, right? The five W's, right? So you figure out why you're doing and then figure out how you're going to do that, right? Why do I exist? What's the purpose of my life? What's my mission? Then how am I going to accomplish that mission? You may need to continue your education to get there. there may, you may need to uh, get more experience, right? And then you figure out what it is exactly along the way that you're going to do to get there. So for me, it's been transportation and government. I've segued out for six years in the local government. And it's still the same thing. I was still overseeing transportation operations in those counties, but I was able to do more and help more people in a broader way. And then you figure out where it is you want to go. Where do you want to live right now? Because we live in this COVID world, you can almost live anywhere for some of these jobs. I was talking to a transit agency in... Um, Florida, and they said, we're hiring procurement people from anywhere in the country because they can just do all the work online. 
So figure out where you want to be. And then finally, I think figure when you need to make these moves. So there are times when you need to make a move and you need to move forward. You know, like I felt like I remember uh, building up to going to law school. When am I going to go to law school? When am I gonna... It took me five years. And then finally, it just came to me. Now's the time I have to go. So you have to listen to yourself. And that's my final wrap-up lesson. The final wrap-up lesson is <laughs> turn off your phone, turn off the radio, turn off the noise, sit still somewhere and listen to your inner voice. For a leader, I think a lot of times that allows you to figure out where the pain points are coming from. If you're quiet and listen, you can say, oh, I'm getting bit in my right leg, so to speak. You know, I got to solve that issue. And you know then where to put your attention. But if we're always on the go, 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 and we never take time to be quiet and really contemplate our life, contemplate our decisions, our family, our faith, all these things that are important to us, I don't, I don't think we'll make the, the wisest decisions. So I, I, I close an hour and a half of talking by saying, shut up, be quiet, and listen to the inner voice. Thank you, Dale. I love it, man. That's great. The um, now and look, we're, Paul, we're gonna have to do it again because I'm taking all these notes, and you know, two things that we're not we don't have time to answer today because I know you got to run to your your interview, which is, man, I want to know what habits you know that have you've got to have some core habits that are doing all this, and and how do you keep this energy up, man? You've gotten so much done, so we're gonna kind of yeah. lay that out there for next time because you know those are two things i'm sure everybody listens going man this dude's done so much he's a lawyer band couple, like everything that you described on that journey which thank you for that it's great and then but you've got this energy man so we've got to tap into that next time yeah. and, and dig in so we can thank feed you. on that too so 50 pounds uh, in the last five months i gained a lot of weight yeah, I, I don't know how you couldn't have yeah. <laughs> you're well, grinding so man i love it I've been on a so, program hey well it's look, a lot better well, Paul, man, well, good good for you, man. Congratulations on all your success and your books. And thanks for sharing your story today. Uh, I've got a page of notes here. I hope others do as well, man. And uh, I appreciate you. So uh, thanks for coming on and uh, and good luck with the with your interview. Turn it over, Dale. Thanks, Dale. God bless you. All right. Thank you. Yep. Talk to you soon. 